Hey everybody, welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast, dedicated to raising awareness, sharing IBD stories, and offering support for those with Crohn's and colitis. Together, we can share knowledge, experiences, and help show the world the many faces of IBD. Hi everyone, thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior since 2006 and lifelong fitness fanatic. My guest today is Alexa Federico, a nutritional therapy practitioner, autoimmune paleo coach, author, blogger, and a fellow Crohn's warrior. If you follow her on Instagram, you'll recognize her as at Girl in Healing. Her healing journey began with her diagnosis at the age of 12, and it has shaped her entire career and path she is on now. Today, she helps people learn how to utilize food in support of their health and not against it. Many of her clients have gut issues, including Crohn's and colitis, and she helps teach people how food plays a role in both healing and disease. So without further ado, let's jump in and get started with today's episode. Thank you so Thank you so much for joining me today, Alexa, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm excited to have you here. So we know that every Crohn's and colitis story is different. Why don't you start by telling me your Crohn's story and what led to your diagnosis? Sure. So as you mentioned, I was 12 when I was diagnosed. And before this, I had a pretty unremarkable childhood in terms of my health. Um, nothing strange or nothing traumatic had happened. But when I was 12, um, over the course of a few months, I started having these weird symptoms. And at the time, I didn't know that they were related, but they are actually all uh, Crohn's symptoms. So I was having joint pain and GI issues and being really tired and um, even getting fever, like feverish at night and getting really hot and just getting really poor sleep. And I had gone to my uh, pediatrician's office a handful of times because obviously I was young, but my parents could see that something was very off. And like a lot of people, we kept getting turned away and told that these weren't real issues that didn't need to be investigated further. But eventually things got pretty bad. And that's when one doctor referred me out to a gastroenterologist and confirmed that I had uh, moderate to severe Crohn's disease. About how long did that take from the first time you started having those initial symptoms until you finally got to see a gastroenterologist? I want to say uh, it was at least three months because I remember right after seeing that gastroenterologist, he said that I should be admitted immediately. And I went to the hospital and, you know, went through with the admission and I was there right after Christmas um, and then through the new year that year. So um, and I remember that it all started in the fall. So it was kind of like a three-month um, kind of journey and going back to doctors until we were taken seriously. And had you ever heard about Crohn's disease before? Or did you have anyone in your family with this? So I was not aware of Crohn's disease. I knew that 
Uh, my dad had slight digestive problems once in a while, but nothing that interfered with his life. And I knew my aunt had some digestive problems that were more serious, but I had just never really asked what they were or, you know, it wasn't really discussed that much. And then later I, you know, I was found out that I do have Crohn's and colitis on both my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family. Oh, wow. So that's, so you actually do have it in your family history there. Yes, we um, were able to connect the dots between some older family members that we realized had it. So you seem to be in a good spot right now in managing your IBD, but it has certainly not been an easy road. In some of your recent Instagram posts, you talked about this past year you were dealing with a lot of complications. So tell me, what did it take for you to finally get to the spot that you're in now? Um, a lot. So yeah, you're <laughs> right. This past year, 2018 was probably the biggest um, hurdle of having Crohn's so far. Um, and you know, up until this point, it was a lot of self management, a lot of lifestyle and diet changes, and last year. I had developed an abscess, which is a common complication that's mm -hmm. pretty hard to treat. Um, and that's what happened with me. Uh, we tried the regular treatments and they ended up just not being enough. So um, surgery ended up being kind of my last resort, but it gave me my life back and I am so thankful for it. Now, were you on medications before the surgery and then since you'd been diagnosed, had you been on and off medications or was it all through dietary management and lifestyle? When I was first diagnosed, I went on a few different medications to try. Um, they're not the first line of medications given now and they didn't do much for me, which I believe is why they're not used as much anymore. Um, so I did that for the first few years, and I had just not felt any different being on them. So I decided to go off, and I did pretty well. Um, and I I stayed that way for several years, and it wasn't perfect. There's definitely been times when I've been more symptomatic, but nothing extreme had happened being off those medications. And then last year, um, last spring was the first time I tried a biologic and I had tried Remicade for about four months um, because I had started getting some different kind of pain, um, which ended up being that abscess, but it wasn't clear at the time. And then when we discovered the abscess, I had to stop the Remicade. So I stopped that in August. So it was only about four months I was on it. And it wasn't long enough or strong enough to do anything for me. So, um, and no, I haven't been on anything since then. And my plan is to see, keep check, keep checking on myself, mm -hmm. um, every few months and seeing how I'm doing off the medications and just reevaluate how I am with my doctor at these check-ins. Mm -hmm. That's a good plan. So tell me a little bit more about the surgery. Was it since you were trying different things leading up to the surgery. Was it expected and had you been able to mentally prepare for going into the surgery? And then tell me a little bit about what the recovery was like for you. Yeah, so surgery is something I've always 
felt like I was working to prevent. Like that felt like the biggest thing that I could encounter. And um, we we just tried so many things, you know, in the past six months to heal this abscess. But uh, like I said, they're so hard to treat. And when I had the consultation with my surgeon and he strongly recommended the surgery, I was still a little skeptical and I just felt like, do I really need this? But it came to the point where the the pain and just the inconvenience of the abscess, just the way it was kind of ruling my life because it wouldn't go away was just too much and had been going on for too long that I had just said, forget it, let's do this. And then I got really comfortable with it. And I had a couple of months to prepare. Um, so it wasn't emergent and I could pick the date. So I chose right after the new year so I could have some time to enjoy the holidays and like you said, get mentally prepared for it. So I did a little bit of research, just light research on my own, looking for some anecdotal stories of other people who got surgery. Um, I have some friends in the medical field and I just drilled them with questions (laughs) and I felt really prepared and really well. And the day of the surgery, I honestly woke up so calm and felt so at peace. And normally for any kind of um, visit to the hospital or any kind of procedure, I'd be definitely nervous and have a lot of nervous energy. Um, But somehow I was just totally calm. I think I just knew deep down it was the right thing. And I was just excited to do it and get past this roadblock in my life. Mm-hmm. And as far as recovery goes, um, I had honestly expected it to be more difficult and to go on a lot longer um, because it was a fairly major surgery. Um, and from what I had read, some people had taken weeks or months to feel better, but my surgery had gone really well and there was no complications. So really it took two weeks to feel really well again. And I've been telling other people who've been wondering, yeah, that's really not too long. Um, If I had had to go back to work, like someone who had a family and needed to get back to work after a week, I could have Um, Like if it was in an office or something, definitely not some kind of manual Mm -hmm. labor. But (laughs) I I felt like if I had to be somewhere, I could I could drive and go to work. Um, The first three to four days were definitely the roughest. But I had to just keep reminding myself that I had just been opened up, you know, a day ago and a lot has happened. So I just tried to keep in mind that um, it was a big stressor for my body. And I just got to give some time for it to get back to normal. So you took a couple weeks until you were feeling good. Did you ease into everything else that you would typically do on a day and give yourself a little bit more time to recover? Or was it pretty much after two weeks you were feeling good to get back to your routine? After two weeks, I was pretty much in my normal routine. Um, I spent like the second week easing into it and doing a little bit more of my normal activities. And then by, um, you know, week 14 or day 14 or 15, I was, I was pretty much in my regular schedule and it, it kind of just was seamless. And, um, 
yeah, I had a lot of help from family and friends who were visiting and my family at home was helping me, especially that first week when it was the the hardest to just move around even. So mm-hmm. I was really lucky that I had a good support team. The support makes all the difference. And you actually, Absolutely. you just recently wrote a blog post because the surgery wasn't all that long ago, but you wrote a post on how to prepare and what to expect for surgery. Is there anything that you wish, and I think you may have touched on it a little bit in your article, but is there anything you wish people would have told you before the surgery but didn't? So actually the biggest thing that I just wasn't expecting, um, and other people might already know this, but I wasn't expecting to have uh, chest pain and some trouble breathing after the surgery. And it wasn't like I was gasping for breath, but simply like sitting up and walking to the bathroom, um, I felt like I couldn't take deep breaths. And that made me nervous and would make me want to take more breaths, you know, like when you're getting anxious about not having enough air. Um, So the first few days and up to the week, that that was something that was happening. And scared me. I just thought something was wrong. and I didn't know that was an outcome of having surgery. Um, I think that was the, the biggest thing that impacted me that I wanted to know. The other thing is um, if you have uh, some kind of wound before going into the surgery or if a wound develops because of the surgery. Um, so I have my where the incision was, but then I also had two wounds. Um, One was from where I had a drain and then the other was from where I had a fistula. And those are sort of deep. So they had to require packing, which is when um, a doctor or nurse will take these thin strips of gauze and basically fill the wound in so that the top of the skin doesn't heal before the bottom fills in. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a way to have the wound heal from the bottom up. And, um, that's something that I'm still waiting to heal all the way, although I'm not in pain or anything. It's just more of an inconvenience that I still have to, I still have these wounds and waiting to heal. But, um, I didn't know about wound packing before this and I didn't know I'd be going home, um, having visiting nurses come and do this for a few times a week. So, that's something mm-hmm. else I uh, would ask about or look into if uh, I was going into surgery. Mm-hmm. Those are good things to to ask about and to think about. So during the recovery, I think I think I read it on your blog. You mentioned that you drank bone broth, you took colloidal silver and oregano oil capsules, and those were a part of the recovery process. Is that correct? Those were more uh, before the surgery. Um, I continued taking the silver after, just until I had finished the bottle. Um, it's good for the immune system. But the other things were all remedies I was tr- trying to use together um, to get rid of the abscess. Mm-hmm. And those plus the other conventional treatments all together still weren't enough. And that's yeah. why I ultimately chose the surgery. Sometimes no matter what we throw at Crohn's, it's just, it's not enough. It's a really powerful disease. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the oregano oil myself. So there's certainly been times I've tried it and sometimes it has been helpful for various things, but other times it just can't compete. So, right. So let's jump into one of my favorite topics. And I'm pretty sure it's yours, one of your favorite topics too, based on your career. 
and that's food. So you are a nutritional therapy practitioner and you help people every day navigate what to eat and how it can impact their health. So tell me, how did you discover food to be such a critical component in your own healing journey? Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite topics, <laughs> and I always have plenty to say on it. So <laughs> I discovered food was a big part of my healing process, um, probably about 12 years now. It was about a year after I was diagnosed, and I had kept getting sick despite trying some of the medications and being in the realm of the very few dietary restrictions I was given, like see, like being careful with seeds and popcorn and maybe some dairy. Um, but I really wasn't advised at all on diet. And my parents kept questioning, you know, food must be affecting this if, you know, this is her, her GI tract that's inflamed and that keeps flaring up. But they still, you know, my, my doctors at the time were still really not listening or willing to explore that at all. And I am really lucky that I had some, or I have some relatives that were seeing what some would call an alternative practitioner or a holistic practitioner that did some food testing and worked with them to identify food triggers. And I was able to work with him. And I still see him today. I see him a few times a year. And he really, the biggest things I got from him was just learning about food. Every time I went to see him, I've just learned more and more about different foods and how they can affect the body. And at first it was really hard and I honestly hated it. And I was 12 or 13 <laughs> and, you know, that is not fun to have to eat healthy foods and not indulge mm -hmm. with your friends. But I then think over I, the years I ended up loving it. Well, and I think I read in your book that the specific carbohydrate diet was the first, when you were 12, that was kind of the first diet you went into and you'd said in the book that you were so angry at first or just upset of all the foods you had to give up, just as you were saying. Yeah, my diet was similar to that. It was kind of a combo of SCD and paleo and all these things. They had a lot of similarities, but it was tailored to my needs as well. And mm -hmm. the SCD was actually what my doctors had mentioned, but my only memory is them saying, like, in 30 seconds or less, that there is, you know, the SCD, SCD exists, but there is no evidence that it works, and it's really difficult to stick to. And that was it. And basically telling us, don't try it. So that's why we were kind of pushed away from trying any diet-related any diet things, because we, you know, we had no evidence that they worked, and it just sounded like a big undertaking. How did it work for you in once you were going down the path of dietary management? Was it a process to identify trigger foods and safe foods and really tailor what you were eating for your own body? Yeah, and that's changed a lot over the years. So it helps a lot when I visit my um, holistic practitioner. He uses a form of food testing. So that's always my base. And it kind of resets every year. It's always a little bit different. Um, but even despite that, I'm always still listening and feeling how things uh, like feel in my own body. Um, despite any kind of testing, if something doesn't feel well, I will 
try it again another time. And, you know, a lot of times we're intuitive to those things. We just have to really pay attention. And um, that's what I do. It's just always listening to my body and always changing and adjusting um, depending on what my body is telling me. And it kind of sounds like you're saying that foods and the way they affect you have evolved over the years. And I know for me that there's certain foods I used to be able to eat and then life goes on and then all of a sudden I can't eat them anymore. Is that kind of what you're experiencing where it just evolves every year as far as what the right type of food for you to eat is? Absolutely. So I feel like there are some foods that have always been my safety foods and, you know, always make me feel okay. But yeah, there's foods that I've been eating a lot of and then they I can tell they're starting to bother me. And then vice versa, there's foods I used to not be able to tolerate that after some time of avoiding it and working on healing me from the inside out, that I can tolerate them after time, which is always a really exciting thing to find out. Yeah, there's a a new food on the list. (laughs) Exactly. So tell me, you've had, I think it's been 13 years since you've been diagnosed. Do you feel like you've gained any control over your disease throughout the years? I really do. I feel like I have a good handle on it. Despite, you know, the overall view of it, of autoimmune diseases, you know, us not knowing the cause and not knowing the triggers, I feel like I know my personal triggers and I just, I know my body signals so well that I feel like even if I start to feel like I'm getting into a flare that I can recognize that and I can change my habits or try something different. And I feel like I have control over a lot of um, what makes me feel well or what makes me feel not so well. And, uh, you know, the one piece that I don't is my genetics. Um, and then, of course, there's other other things, maybe in the environment that could cause triggers, but things in my life, you know, the way I live my life and the foods I eat, I have control over. And that is a huge part for me. So I feel like that that's a huge piece for staying healthy for me. Good. It is. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how you're able to stay healthy aside from just the food. Are there other lifestyle tricks and and hacks that you do or does fitness play a role? What are the other pieces that you find are important for helping yourself to stay in remission? Right. So you're right. There is more than food. Um, Definitely. Fitness for me has been more of a newer thing over the past few years. And that simply for me is light to moderate exercise. Um, I can't do intense exercise or things like in, in under the heat outside in the summer. Um, I like to do walking, yoga, maybe light bike riding, um, just nothing that's like driving me into the ground because I will be wiped out. And I think I'm someone that would start to get symptomatic if I push myself too hard. But I've realized that that light movement is really good for me. And I think it was a missing piece in my health for so many years. Um, So that's one. And then kind of a more general piece to my health is just taking care of me in the sense that if I need extra time to rest 
or if I'm waking up exhausted, I need to go to bed at eight o'clock, then I do that. And just listening to those cues. Um, rest is a big one for me. I, I do not feel well if I get a really bad sleep the night before. So I really prioritize my sleep. Um, I like to go to bed early. So sleep and movement have been a couple big ones. And one more that I'll mention, which is definitely something everyone should be considering, but mm-hmm. uh, stress management is mm-hmm. really huge. So yes. that's another one. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you find that really does help with stress management? Because I know for years I used to say, I'm so stressed, I need to control my stress, but I never really could. It was all talk like, I'm, I'm going to be less stressed, but I never, I never really did anything. So are there certain things that you found that you were able to do that actually helped bring down those stress levels? Yes. And I think a lot of people do what you said is talk about they have a lot of stress, but I think most people just don't know the best ways to manage it. Um, And managing my stress or basically negative emotions in general have been, it's been a big piece that's been evolving pretty much over the past year. It's very new for me. But you know, simply stated, um, journaling has been really helpful. Writing gratitude lists, um, writing thing, making a happy list um, of things that you love. My business coach introduced us to that, and she challenges us to do one thing from our happy list every day, which I love. It can be just something simple, like getting a coffee or going for a walk. So in times of stress, like when I'm able to walk away from what's stressing me out, I pull something from that list. And if it's nice, I'll go for a walk or I'll call a friend or read 10 minutes in a book that I like. It's it's really like separating myself from the stressor, taking a break and then revisiting it later with a clearer mind. And hopefully, you know, I'm calmer then and I have like a, a better headspace um, the better mindset to deal with it rationally. That's a great, super easy trick that anyone could implement. Very great. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about flares because you've obviously been able to manage and navigate them for the better part of 13 years. So do you have any tips and tricks when you notice that your body is starting to be symptomatic and what you can do to take care of your body to help calm that down? Yes. So I would say one tip that everyone can do is to give your body more rest. I think one of the worst things you can do is to continue going at a high pace, continue exercising, um, you know, intensely continue working super hard at your job and, you know, doing all of the things. I think number one it's time to slow down because your body is starting to tell you the signals that it's in distress. And then the next thing I would say is to um, start incorporating really simple foods and things that you know your body tolerates that are easy to digest because that'll also make your digestive system have a little break um, when you know that you're putting in foods that you know it really that are really simple to digest and that aren't going to cause any kind of symptoms or trigger anything else. So you're kind of giving your body a little extra support and hopefully it will help uh, minimize whatever you're going through. 
Mm -hmm. How do you deal with the mental frustrations that can come along with a flare? I know even when you know, certain symptoms start to come back up that you can be feeling really good one day and then those symptoms show up and it's a very mentally challenging, it's frustrating because you feel like you're losing that traction. How do you remind yourself that this is just a hiccup in the full journey and how do you keep perspective on that? Mm, that's a really good topic. Um, and I will say first that I tell people all the time, to keep it in perspective that things are just a hiccup. But I understand so well that when the day comes when things are off and I feel like I'm losing control and questioning everything I'm doing, that it is so easy to to lose that really good mindset and to start um, getting discouraged. But all I can say is that I keep things simple. I try not to overcomplicate complicate my schedule or my diet because that's just one more thing to worry about when you've got so many things going on. Yeah. I'll also get more into my journaling and just take more time to relax and just remind myself as you've said that it's a hiccup and just I know that it can't last forever and so it will end at some point and that I have a lot of tools in my healing toolbox that I can help myself um, get through it a little better. So it's really a lot of self-talk and just keeping the bigger picture in mind that this is a small hurdle in the big picture of life and things were good once and they can get good again. Definitely good to keep that big picture in mind. So what's the biggest Absolutely. challenge? What's the biggest challenge you've faced since having Crohn's and how did you get through it? Well, physically, it was definitely this past year having the abscess. Um, it was really uh, physically limiting for me. Um, there's been weeks or I guess even months that I haven't been able to drive, um, haven't had a good appetite, and just dealing with a lot of pain and pain that I'm not used to and has just been so... Uh, different from my normal day to day self. And mentally, the pain was the pain was getting to me mentally, is what I'm trying to say. And was mm -hmm. um, like we were just talking about, it was extremely discouraging. And often I wondered when it would end because it was so hard to push through and just keep living every day in pain and wondering, was it going to stop um, bothering me today? Was it going to start getting better? And so it was a really good, it's been really good to be on the other side of that and to have gone through that now and to see how much I had gotten through and just recognizing my own strength through that. Um, so definitely dealing with the abscess and fistulas was the hardest undertaking with Crohn's so far, just physically and mentally. It really, really took a toll on um, not only just my day-to-day -day activities, but just mentally was was really hard. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about your journey into becoming a nutritional therapy practitioner because you deal with patients and a lot of your clients have IBD. So you have a firsthand knowledge of exactly what they're going through and this perspective that not 
that not just anyone else would have. So when did you decide in your journey that nutritional therapy was where you were going to go? So it was after I had gone to college and graduated um, with an elementary education degree that I decided I wanted to go into um, nutrition. And I had wanted to be a teacher my whole life. I'm one of those people that always knew what I wanted to do. And I went to college for teaching and I did love it. But it was in my senior year when I was student teaching. And it was, um, I think, in November. And I was in like a mini flare. I was a little symptomatic. I was super tired. And I was the student teacher having a ton of work on my shoulders and a lot, a lot of pressure. And I remember just thinking at the end of each day, if this was my classroom, if this was a year from now, and this was my own classroom, how would I be getting through this? And it really opened my eyes um, at how much work teachers were doing. And I, I didn't think it was the best fit with my health and my lifestyle to take on a job that was so rewarding, but so um, demanding. And, you know, if I didn't have enough support, then it would be really taking everything out of me. So after I graduated, I just took a little time off to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was actually through Instagram that I found the NTA, the Nutritional Therapy Association, where I ended up getting my certification um, just by people who I had already followed. And I just, you know, talked to people and see how they liked the program. And I enrolled pretty uh, much right after that, like the next month, I think I signed up to do their program. And it, it was like a light bulb went off that I had developed such a passion for wellness and nutrition over the years. And I love talking to people about my story and inspiring other people to try, um, try new things. And um, I just was so excited to do this and that I could work from home and not worry about feeling unwell and not having to call a boss to be um, to call out sick and all of those things. So it was just the perfect match for me. It really does sound like the perfect path because you get to teach clients. So you get that love of teaching and help coaching them through changes and improving their life, but also bringing in a lot of other skill sets and passions that you have. So it really does sound like a perfect path. Do you, do you see clients only in person or do you also do some coaching or seeing clients online? Right now, actually all of my clients are online. So I have some that are kind of across the country. I've talked to mm -hmm. people even in Europe. Um, so right now I don't do any in-person consultations. It's all online. So what does, if a new person wants to come to you, what's kind of the initial path or what would they expect as a as a new patient of yours, a new client, take me through a little bit of that journey, the consultation, and then how they work with you. Sure. So I always chat with people, um, have a 30-minute free call, and that's really just to get to know each other. And so I can hear what they're dealing with right now and what their goals are. And this is just so I can make sure I can help them and make sure that they're they're willing, they know what they're going to sign up for and they're willing to do the work for it. And if we're a good fit, then we proceed. And the first thing I have them do is 
Um, I have some uh, like a questionnaire that's online and it's pretty lengthy and then some other forms that I'll help them fill out. And I go over all of this before we meet and I take lots of notes and jot down a ton of questions to ask. And our first meeting together is going through all of these um, and kind of mapping out the big picture of our time together and the big end goal. And then, you know, each time we meet, we will revisit that big goal and revise smaller goals to, to be working on until we meet again. So usually a client will have one to three things to work on. It could be some kind of stress management technique. It could be the removal or addition of some new foods. And then we'll talk about progress at our next consult or through email um, in between. And if anyone who is listening is interested and if the light bulb is going on and they're saying, I want to talk with her about this, can they sign up on your website to become a client? Yes. On my website, they can sign up for that first three call. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like I said, if things go well, then they can sign up on my online calendar. So the 30-minute call is on there and anyone can sign up on my website. Fantastic. And that's girlinhealing.com, correct? Correct. I'll put that in the show notes. So so let's keep talking. Tell me about what compelled you to become an IBD advocate and to start sharing your own story. Yeah, I really love um, just sharing my experience because I think IBD is such a unique disease and everyone is so different that I think that's what makes it difficult to finding what works for you because we're just so vastly different. And I think if sharing my story can help someone and maybe they just take a small piece of it and try something that I tried and maybe it works for them and they start seeing improvements, that's great. And maybe they try it and it doesn't work for them. And that's okay too, because now they know that they can go on and try something else. So I really like to think that I'm putting everything I can out there in hopes that someone in need will find my story and take something from it, take a lesson or something new to try to add to their healing regimen. And I also feel like it, w it, it was very isolating and very scary when I was first diagnosed. And I know a lot of people feel that way. Um, it's very shocking to hear that you have a new diagnosis that's chronic and there's no cure and it's autoimmune. It's a very scary thing to, to be told by a doctor. And so the more I can be relatable to other people and show them how I've been able to live normally as people want to, <laughs> people mm -hmm. are always looking, you know, to feel normal and to be normal, then that's really the goal is to just connect with other people and, you know, hope that my story and experiences will help them live a little bit better with their health conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, as you've been sharing your story, how has being an advocate shaped your own view of Crohn's and colitis? It's been a really good experience to, um, to see what other people are doing because I've connected with a lot more, you know, 
bloggers and authors and, you know, recipe developers and all kinds of advocates and to see what they're doing. And it, it helps my, my perspective because before all of this, I just had my view of what works for me and thinking that was the only way and the best way. But um, I also get a lot of feedback from people who find my blog and share their stories with me. So it's been really eye-opening um, and humbling to see that, you know, other things I haven't done or would, had not even thought of doing were really life-saving for other people. So it's really, really um, opened my eyes to, to a lot more, basically, to a lot more um, treatments and just ways of living that have helped. And it, it's great because then I can translate that to my clients and, you know, mention or suggest something that could then help them that I didn't know before. Sounds like the toolkit is constantly growing. It is. Yeah, I like that analogy. <laughs> so is there one thing that you wish people knew about Crohn's or colitis, but don't? I think um, this is common, you know, with a lot of autoimmune and chronic illnesses in general, but it's a lot can be happening inside. So the how way a person feels might be really terrible, but it's not visible on the outside. Um, so I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, but I do find it's, it's probably the biggest thing about Crohn's and colitis is that it is an invisible illness. So, um, people can be hiding, you know, their pain, but it's still really impacting their lives. And sometimes people don't see that and maybe don't believe that they're ill or um, treat them differently or something. So I think that invisibility part mm -hmm. of the disease causes a lot of setbacks in people's lives. I would agree. I think in some ways we're, we are too good at hiding our IBD symptoms and uh, it, it doesn't let people know what's there. So sure. we... We mentioned your website, girlinhealing.com. If people want to keep up with you and follow you more, where else can they find you online? I love Instagram. I'm there sharing a feed, stuff on my feed, or I'm doing something in my stories almost every day, at least weekly. Um, but I also have a free Facebook group, <clears throat> excuse me, that people can join and ask questions and look for support um, in this big group of all people who have Crohn's or colitis. Mm -hmm. And then your book is on Amazon. And is it anywhere else? And that's the, the complete guide to Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, if anyone is looking for that. I know it's on Amazon. Where else can they find your book? It's actually only on Amazon right now. Mm -hmm. It could be purchased as a paperback or on the Kindle. Perfect. I'm going to put all of those into the show notes so that people can easily click and find everything you just mentioned there. Well, we covered a lot today. We talked about a lot of different topics. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you maybe wanted to share with the audience today? Maybe just a little nugget of something that if anyone is struggling and feeling like nothing is working, just don't give up. 
I like to say that it's okay to move slowly and, um, you know, to make small steps of progress, but just don't stop altogether and don't give up because things will turn around. No matter how slow we're going, if we're moving forward, we're still moving forward. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly valuable, and I really appreciate you taking the time to sit and visit with me and share your Crohn's story and a little bit about what has worked for you with our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an IBD story, either as a patient or a family member, that you'd like to share as a guest on this podcast, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email at crohn'sfitnessfood at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about me and my Crohn's journey, follow me on Instagram using at crohn'sfitnessfood, or visit my blog for in-depth articles about my struggles and victories with Crohn's through diet, fitness, and lifestyle at www.crohn'sfitnessfood.com. And finally, remember... Be strong, be grateful, and be the warrior that you are.